good morning to those of you in Bartlett and Blackberry Creek and DeKalb who are joining those of us who are gathered here in St. Charles. We're about to look into God's Word. We want God to be our teacher. So would you join me in prayer as we invite him uh, to speak to us from his holy word? God, uh, we're bowed under the authority of your word right now. You are our king and our God. And so if there's any hardness of heart, if there's any closeness, God, to the sound of your voice, I pray that you'd open us up right now. And may we be able to take away something that will be useful to our lives and draw us closer to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you probably know, this is, a, uh, this is a very important weekend in our country. Uh, people have been looking forward to this weekend for some time with great anticipation, great excitement. Uh, this is the weekend that PBS broadcasts the final episode of the final season of Downton Abbey. Uh-huh, yeah. So allow me to begin uh, with, uh, with the sermon illustration drawn from one of the recent episodes, and I promise not to be a, you know, a spoiler and give away the, in, the entire storyline here. Uh, Mary is the oldest of three grown daughters in this aristocratic family that lives in a beautiful mansion, beautiful castle-like uh, like home in England in the 1920s. Mary is an ice princess. She is mean. She is spiteful. And she's especially got it out for her younger sister, Edith. She loves to make life miserable for Edith. So in a recent episode, and I'm giving away just a little bit here, okay, Mary reveals to Edith's potential fiancé, you following this? That, that Edith has had a baby out of wedlock. I mean, who says Downton Abbey is not a soap opera? Of course it is. Okay? And so this, of course, destroys the engagement. This destroys Edith's life. This is one more reason, Downton Abbey fans, we have to hate Mary. Okay? But Mary's mom steps in and she confronts Mary for her wicked behavior. And she says, Mary, you have to make peace with Edith. And then you need, need to make peace with yourself. And at this point, I'm screaming at my TV screen, and Mary's got to make peace with God. How about that, huh? Which is when Sue leans over and whispers to me, it's a TV show, honey. Mary doesn't, she's not a real person. <laughs> Mary needs to make peace with God. Well, today we're going to take a look at how to make peace with God on a daily basis when, when our bad behavior damages that relationship. And friends, this is a very important lesson for us to learn because bad behavior is a regular part of our lives. And, and it cuts us off from a genuine fellowship with God. The prophet Isaiah warns us, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, he says, your, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. How many of you know that's not a good thing? To separate ourselves on a daily basis from God to keep his, his face from us. So the Bible teaches us how to daily restore a broken relationship with God. It's a spiritual discipline called confession. Confession. We're going to learn about it from Psalm 51. So I hope you brought a Bible with you. Turn with me to Psalm 51, right in the middle of your, your Bible, and try to make the pages, make enough noise so that I know you really brought a Bible. Or shake your electronic device so I could see the screen. Okay, good. See some of those out there. This is the third week of a six-part series, a study in the book of Psalms we're calling Playlist. We're calling it Playlist because these 150 psalms 
are actually songs. They, they were composed by a variety of authors over a number of years' time and then eventually collected into one book that has served as the worship song playlist for believers throughout the centuries. I mean, these are the worship songs that were used by Old Testament believers, by Jesus himself, by Christ followers from the first century until today. Now, we're not going to be covering the entire book of Psalms in six weeks. In fact, if you do the math, six Psalms, they represent, what, like 4% of the 150 Psalms. But we have specifically chosen the six Psalms we're teaching from because each of them represents an entire category of Psalms within the book of Psalms. So, for example, the first week of this series, I preached from Psalm 63, a song of worship. Okay, a, a, a psalm that's representative of a lot of psalms that have to do with worship, praising God for who he is, for what he's done, psalms that are rich in God's attributes, his praiseworthy characteristics. Second week of the series, last weekend, Pastor Clayton, he preached from Psalm 13, a psalm of lament. And it, it, let me tell you, if you missed it, go online, pick it up, some fantastic teaching. And, and Clayton told us that 40% of the Psalms, 40% have some element of lament in them, crying out to God, God, things are a mess, you know, when life hits the fan. Well, today, we're going to look at a third category of Psalms. Psalm 51 is a song of confession, and there are at least seven songs of confession in the book of Psalms. So, if your Bible hard copy or electronic device is open to Psalm 51. I want to begin by looking at the superscription of this psalm. Those are the italicized words at the top of the psalm before verse 1. And I explained to you a couple of, uh, of weekends ago that these superscriptions were not part of the original psalms, not inspired by God. They were added by a later editor who wanted to help us understand who probably wrote the psalm and under what circumstances the psalm was written. So Psalm 51, the superscription reads, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now we'll get to the full story a, a little later, but it's apparent that David wrote this psalm, this song of confession, after he was confronted by his buddy Nathan about his adultery with Bathsheba. So this is not the only time that David sinned in his life, but this, this was a whopper. This did serious damage to his relationship with God. And so David is about to teach us how do you mend a broken relationship with God when you've sinned. And just a footnote before we jump into the psalm. My Bible just automatically opens to Psalm 51 because I use this psalm so often. In fact, it doesn't take me long after I've bought a new Bible, kind of worn one out. Uh, the, the most well-worn page of my Bible, my new Bible, quickly becomes Psalm 51. Because I'm a habitual sinner who constantly is in, in need of making right a relationship with God. So I commend you, Psalm 51. I encourage you to even consider memorizing it. I've committed it to memory so I could pray it anywhere, anytime, you know, when I need to make things right with God. So Psalm 51, if you've, uh, if you've read my book, Prayer Coach, you know I devote an entire chapter on how to confess sin from Psalm 51. So if it sounds a little bit familiar, it may be because you've read Prayer Coach. 
This song of confession, there are five verses, five stanzas to the song. And the first one has to do with the review. That's where you begin confession with a review. So if you've got your outline, fill out point number one there, the review, and follow along as I read the opening verses of Psalm 51. David prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David was keenly aware of his sins. He says here, I, I, I know my transgressions. So no, uh, Nobody needed to point them out to him because a, a friend had already taken care of that. A guy by the name of Nathan, a prophet, had been sent to God after David's sin, had been sent to David by God after David's sin with Bathsheba. And, and Nathan was, was typically an in-your-face kind of guy, but on this occasion he realized that if he offended David, he could lose more than his job as court counselor. He could use his, lose his head. And so he takes a very subtle approach. He decides to use finesse. He tells David a story. He says, David, I've got a story for you. So there's this poor man, and he's got one sheep. It's his little pet lamb. It's the only sheep he owns. Even eats his, his, at, at his dinner table with him. But next door to him lives this wealthy dude with a huge flock of sheep. But one day a guest comes on a visit, and the healthy man, or, or the, the wealthy man, rather than cooking one of his own lambs for a mutton dinner, he rips off the little pet lamb of the poor guy next door, and he makes lamb stew out of it. Well, David is listening to this story. He is incensed. He jumps out of his throne and he says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looks at David calmly and he says, you're the man. Okay, like this, this is the best gotcha in all of scripture. David is busted. David's sin is brought out into the open, which is why he writes in verse three here, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now, unfortunately, friends, very few of us have a buddy like Nathan, somebody who knows our sins, even our secret sins, and is willing to bring them into the light with both courageous honesty and, and genuine heartfelt concern. So, so we're pretty much on our own when it comes to detecting our transgressions, and the truth is we don't do a very good job of it. See, our, our tendency is to ignore our sins our tendency is to excuse our sins or, or minimize them, not really a big deal, or rationalize them, explain them away, or blame them on somebody else. David himself knew a, a tendency in his own life to do this, to uh, be oblivious to sin. So he prays in another one of his Psalms, Psalm 19, verse 12, Oh God, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Who can discern his errors? In, in other words, we're just not very astute at detecting our own sins. We're, we're blind to them. And that creates a big problem in our lives because if we can't detect our sins, we can't confess them. And when sins go unconfessed in our lives, friends, they do serious damage to our relationship with God. You know, they cut us off from God, as we saw the prophet Isaiah saying. They cut us off from a sense of God's presence. They cut us off from God's answers to our prayers. They, they cut us off from God's blessing, from God's protection. 
How do we keep this from happening? We do a thorough review of our lives every day, asking God's Spirit to help us identify and confess our sins. It is so important. If you're taking notes, just write that down. We do a thorough review of our lives every day, asking God's Spirit to help us identify our sins and confess them. Let me describe what that looks like in my life, okay? First thing every morning, early morning, yeah, I sit down with my Bible and a cup of coffee in my favorite reading chair, and I bow my head before I open God's book, and I pray something like this, Spirit of God, I'm about to review the, the past 24 hours of my life. So I ask you to reveal to me anything that grieves you, anything I've done to displease you. And then I scroll through the previous day, every conversation I had, every meeting I was in, every project I worked on, how I spent my money, what came out of my mouth, what I did with my free time, where I went on my computer. Okay, And I'm, look, I'm looking for, for any example of greed or lust or pride or selfishness or indifference to God or gossip, whatever, that I need to say, sorry, God, I need to confess a sin. If this analogy helps, it's kind of like a football player the day after the game sitting down and watching the game film with his coach right next to him. In this case, my coach is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is my Nathan. In fact, twice a week, I do this not just orally. Twice a week, I take out a piece of paper and I I write it out. Whatever God's Spirit leads me to confess, I I jot it. Of course, you got to destroy that page of paper, right? (laughs) Don't want to leave that around. Now, some of you are thinking, well, it sounds to me like you got a lot to confess. I didn't know our pastor was such a big sinner. Well, I am. And so are you. And, and, and this is why in the opening verses of this psalm, David talks about the prevalence of sin in our lives. You know, he do, does this in a couple of ways. First of all, he uses not one, not two, but David uses three words to describe this habit of sinning. The first word, and you could circle them if you brought your own Bible, the first is the word transgression. You'll find it in the closing line of verse 1 and the opening line of verse 3. In fact, each of these words appears throughout the psalm. Transgression means to trespass. Transgression means to violate a forbidden boundary. So, So God says, don't go there, and we go there. Okay, so there's a little bit of a rebellious spirit behind transgression. God puts up the no trespassing sign and we say, so what? The the second word for sinning in these verses is the word iniquity. And you'll find it in the middle of verse 2. And again, it's going to pop up repeatedly in Psalm 51. Iniquity means to pervert or to twist. See, we, we have this tendency to call what is wrong right. We have this tendency to call what is right Wrong, And our culture loves to help us in this regard, loves to twist God's standards. The third word for sinning is the word sin itself. It's in the second line of both verses 2 and 3 and throughout the psalm. Sin means to miss the mark. Sin was an archery term in David's day. So God has standards. He has do's. He has don'ts. And we, we shoot the arrow and we miss the target. And we shoot again and we miss again. 
So here's the point I want to make by pointing out that David uses three different words to describe this sinning, this transgression, iniquity, sin that goes on in our lives. And, And the point is there's a lot more bad behavior going on in our lives than we're aware of. And it's subtly damaging our relationship with God. You know, the other thing I want you to note in the opening verses of David's song and confession here is his repeated use of the first person singular pronoun, me and my. In fact, again, if you're a Bible marker, note these. Let me read, read the verses again to you. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. Last line of the verse, blot out my transgressions. Keep reading. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Wow. See, as David is practicing confession here, his focus is on himself. There's no blaming of the situation. Well, you know, I just kind of got myself backed into a corner. There's no blaming anybody else. Well, she got me mad and I, you know, no. The the review is about me. What's wrong with me, Holy Spirit? Where have I messed up? You get it? Good. This is where confession begins with a daily review. Takes us to the second verse of this song. Has to do with the repercussions. Go back to the text. Pick it up where we left off. Verse 4. David says, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, if you know the David and Bathsheba story, the first line of verse 4 is somewhat startling. How can David say, against you, you only have I sinned? Are are you kidding me, David? It's only been against God? How about Bathsheba? You know, your neighbor's wife, who you slept with and got pregnant, you sinned against her. How about Uriah, her husband, one of your generals in your army, who you let go off to battle and be killed so that you can have his wife? You sinned against Uriah. How about the nation of Israel, who's trusted you to be a godly leader, a man of integrity? You sinned against them. How about your family? If you know anything about David's life from this point on, things headed south. His boys, a number of his boys became rebellious. I mean, bad boys because they'd seen bad behavior in their dad. How about your family? You sinned against a lot of people. And and, and there's a sense in which that's true of our sinning, friends. It's rare that sin is only a personal matter. Those of us who say, well, this is just a private thing. We're not hurting anybody. Think again. Most often our sin directly or indirectly impacts other people, damages them. But that's not what David's talking about here. What what he's recognizing in verse 4 is that in spite of the fact that his sin has done damage to himself, in spite of the fact that sin has done damage to, to Bathsheba, Uriah, the nation of Israel, his family, First and foremost, the person he has offended has been God. The worst damage of all has been the damage done to his relationship with God. You know, Martin Luther, the great 16th century Christian leader, he explained it this way. He said, no matter what commandment of Scripture we break, no matter what commandment we break, we always break number one. 
And that's because commandment number one, we're talking about the top ten, commandment number one tells us to honor God as God in our lives. So whenever we sin, pick your favorite sin, whatever the sin is, we're dishonoring God. Sin is a contempt of God. Sin is thumbing our nose at God's standards. Sin is saying, well, I don't care about God's reputation. Sin is turning a deaf ear to God's leadership. Sin is demonstrating ingratitude to a God who's been so good to us. Sin is failure to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which Jesus said is the greatest commandment. So when David prays, Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's recognizing that the worst repercussions of our sins are the damages done to our relationship with God. You know, one, one footnote to, to this point. I have learned to make it my practice when I'm daily confessing sin to begin with an apology to the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit. And he's got a job to do in my life. Scripture teaches that, that when we surrender our lives to Jesus, he sends the Spirit of God to come live on the, on the inside. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to make us more and more and more like Jesus. I like to picture it this way. The, the Holy Spirit is painting a beautiful portrait of me, the me that God wants me to become. But when I sin, what I do is I pick up a bottle of black paint and I hurl it against the canvas undoing the work of the Spirit of God. So when I confess my sin, I feel like I need to say, Holy Spirit of God, you've been trying to make me more like Jesus and I've been thwarting you every chance I get. Forgive me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So we do the review. We recognize, secondly, that the repercussions not only extend to ourselves and other people we've damaged, but also to the damaging of the relationship we have with God. And then thirdly, we look for roots. We look for the roots of our sin. Go back to the psalm, pick it up where we left off, verse 5. David says, surely I was sinful at birth. I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Now, I need to say something about the translation of the opening line of verse 6, or we're going to miss something really important that David is saying here. At Christ Community Church, we use the NIV translation of the Bible into contemporary English. It's a very reliable translation. Some fine biblical scholars have put it together. And the opening line that I just read to you of verse 6 reads, God, you desired faithfulness even in the womb. Well, in this particular case, the original Hebrew of this verse doesn't use the word womb. The, the, the word used here literally means God desires faithfulness in the inner place, in the inner place. You say, well, why does this version, this translation then translate it as womb? Well, probably because in the previous verse, verse 5, David had said, I've been a sinner since birth ever since my mother conceived me. And now he talks about sin in the, the, the faithfulness, rather, that God desires in the inner place. So the translators said, well, must be womb. I don't think womb's a good translation for a couple of reasons. 
Number one, because it just doesn't make sense to me. God wants us to be faithful in our mother's womb. What does that mean? But, but secondly, I don't like it because most other translations keep it the literal. You desire faithfulness in the inner place. Even the previous edition of the NIV translates it that way, in the inner place. What's so important about that? David is saying God wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be people of integrity in the inner core of our being, in our heart. So when we confess sin, listen, when we confess sin, what we need to do is get to the heart issues. Say, okay, this is the presenting sin that I see on the surface, but what's behind it? What's the sin behind the sin? What's the heart issue here? What's going on in the inner place? You with me? Okay, so let, let me use an example from, from my own life that will help you understand this. You just got to promise not to throw this up in my face, okay? So share something personal here. So one of my pet sins, and I could give you several, but I won't. Uh, but one of my pet sins is impatience. And so I find myself regularly asking God to forgive me for my impatience. I'm an uh, impatient with slow-moving drivers. I'm impatient with doctors who keep me waiting too long. I'm impatient with the cashiers who have friendly conversations with the person in front of me. You know, I am impatient with every electronic device I own. I'm impatient with staff members, with family members, with, you know, so God forgive me for my impatience and often have to ask forgiveness for the accompanying anger or the rudeness that goes with, with impatience. But one day I'm reading a book, can't even remember the name of the book or the author, but the author said, you know what's behind impatience? Grandiosity. And I said, that's it, grandiosity. What does grandiosity mean? I don't know, I'd never heard the word before. So I looked it up in the dictionary. You know what it means? It means pride. But I like grandiosity better than pride because it kind of paints this picture of somebody who's too big for their britches. And it dawned on me, when I'm impatient, it's because I think I'm such hot stuff that I should not have to wait for anybody or anything. You know, King Jimmy wants what Jimmy wants now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, that's enough. <laughs> See, this is ugly but it's getting at the root of my impatience. You with me? Let me give you a, a couple more examples so you know what this is, okay? Something I hear married men confess to me on occasion. They'll confess that they've traced the lust in their life back to its root cause. So when they find themselves fantasizing about some woman at work or going to a website, porn site, that they shouldn't be going to, they say, you know what's behind it? Anger. So what do you mean anger? I'm mad at my wife. Okay, we've had some brouhaha, we've had some major confrontation, and sharp words have been exchanged, and I nurse that grudge, and when I nurse that grudge, you know what I discover? I'm prey to lust. Surprise. It's no surprise at all. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, when we nurse anger in our lives, it opens the door for Satan to come in and, and, and create all sorts of mischief. So some of the sins in our, our lives can be traced back to anger. Give you one more example. You come home from school and you're scrolling through your Instagram. Because that's what y'all do, right? 
and you're looking for recent posts, recent pictures, and uh, some classmate has posted something, and you look below it, and people have already remarked in nasty ways, made fun of it, dissed it, and you, immediately a really funny, mean comment comes to your mind, and so you pass it on. And then afterwards, God's Holy Spirit says, whoa, that was mean, because you're doing a review, and so you confess the meanness, but what's the root of the sin? What's behind the meanness? Could be jealousy. Could be a desire on, on your part to be liked by uh, other, other people, and so you're posting something you think will make them laugh. What's the root? Get at the roots. Let's go to the fourth verse of the song. The song of confession begins with a review. Then you trace the repercussions back to the damage it's done to your relationship with God. Then you, you look for roots. What's behind the sin? The sin behind the sin. Fourth, the requests. After David acknowledges his sins to God, his confession turns the corner by moving on to some requests. And I want to emphasize before I read the next section of the psalm to you, there are a lot of requests in the next several verses. A lot of requests. Pick it up at verse 7. God, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Let me try to summarize all of David's requests in these verses under one major heading. Okay, there's one major theme I see here. David is asking God to do something with his heart. That's the connecting theme, his heart. He asks God for three kinds of hearts. First, there's the clean heart. Verse 7, God, give me a clean heart. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. I love this verse. I use this verse a lot. You know, after we've confessed our sins, we oftentimes, well, we know we're forgiven, but we still feel dirty. Know what I'm saying? We feel crappy about what we've done. We're a bit disillusioned, a bit disappointed in ourselves. Wouldn't it be great if God could just hose us down, wash away all that grunge? Well, he can. The verse says he can cleanse us with hyssop, wash us whiter than snow. Now, there, there's a picture here I don't want you to miss. It has to do with hyssop. What is hyssop? Hyssop is a plant. It's got a, a tall, slender stalk and a bushy head of leaves at the top of it. It, it looks kind of like a paintbrush. And wh wh when we find it pop up in Scripture, the first reference, it's actually being used as a kind of paintbrush. The first reference to hyssop in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 12 at the time of the Passover. God's people, this is the original Passover, God's people are in slavery in Egypt at the time. Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let God's people go. Pharaoh says, no way. God has to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. So he sends 10 plagues to Egypt, the last one being the most serious. God sends the angel of death to slay every firstborn human and animal. 
But God gives instructions to Moses. He says, now, now to be sure that you guys are safe and protected from the angel of death, here's what I want my people to do. I want them to slay an animal, kill a, a sacrificial animal and take its blood and put it on the doorframe of your, your home. And when the angel of death sees the blood, he will pass over, pass over, and you will not fall under God's judgment. How do you think that blood was applied to the doorframe? It's with hyssop. Hyssop. So hyssop became associated with sacrifices. When David prays in Psalm 51, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. He's thinking of those animal sacrifices he's offered to God in the past, hoping that they will cleanse him from sin. Why animal sacrifices? Well, because in Old Testament times, God had made it clear that the penalty for our sin is death. If we want to go our own way instead of God's way, then we're, we're, we're going to disconnect from the giver of life. We're going to defy the one who is the source of life, and the penalty is death. It's spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. But in his grace, God said in Old Testament times, here's what I'll do. I will accept the death of an animal in place of the death of a sinful person. So if you've sinned, Rather than dying, you can sacrifice this animal. That's what David had been doing, sacrificing animals for cleansing from sin. But these Old Testament sacrifices pointed to an ultimate sacrifice yet to come, pointed to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who would one day give his life on the cross. He would die the death we deserve to pay the penalty for our sins. And interestingly, in the story of Jesus' crucifixion, guess what pops up? Hyssop. One of a handful of references in the entire Bible, you'll read it in John chapter 19. Jesus is hanging on the cross and says, I'm thirsty. And somebody runs and gets a sponge and fills it with wine vinegar and holds it up to Jesus on the end of a stalk of hyssop. I don't think this is accidental. I don't think it's unintentional. I think it's very symbolic. I think this is a reminder. This is associated with sacrifice. And we're looking at the one who is the sacrifice for our sins. And so if you want to be cleansed of your sins, surrender to Jesus. If he's become the savior of your life, then on a daily basis as you're doing house cleaning and you're confessing sins, you have the right to say to him, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Give me a clean heart and he will do it. He will do it. If you've never surrendered to Christ, you've got no right to that appeal to a clean heart. I recommend you surrender to Christ today. So after David prays for a clean heart, the second thing I want to note is he prays for a new heart. Look at verse 10. Circle the first word of the verse. Create, create in me a pure heart, O God. The verb create in this verse is a verb that's only used of God in the Bible because only God can make something out of nothing. That's what the word means. Only God can make something out of nothing. The opening verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before God did that, what was there? There was nothing. God brings something out of nothing, something that is brand new. And this is exactly what we wish God would do for us when we're confessing our sin, isn't it? 
See, it's one thing to pray for a clean heart. So let's say I, I've gossiped. I've run somebody down behind their back, and I do the review, and the Spirit of God says, you gossiped, confess it, and I confess it. And I ask God, give me a clean heart. So I got a clean heart. But you know what I know about me? I'm going to get that clean heart dirty in no time flat. And so I'm going to gossip again and say, give me a clean heart. And gossip again, give me a clean heart. Gossip again, give me a clean heart. You know, there, there, there comes a point with, with our sin. Come on, tell me if this isn't true of you. There comes a point when we say, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be done with gossip or whatever it is. I want a new heart. How about a new heart? Not just a clean heart, but a heart that doesn't keep doing these things that I don't want to do. Well, the good news is the prophet Ezekiel, hundreds of years before Christ, promised that God would do this in us. God says through Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, there's coming a day when I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you who will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Friends, the New Testament teaches that when, when we surrender our lives to Christ, God's spirit, the promised spirit that Ezekiel spoke of, comes to live on the inside, and he now gives us both the desire and the ability to obey God. <laughs> to break the pattern of sin in our lives. So we don't have to keep going back to the same stuff again. Now, if you're trying to break that pattern in your own strength, with your own discipline, good luck. When he got spirit, we got to cry out to him. When we, when we confess our sin and God in this area, would you give me a new heart? New heart. And then thirdly, David asks God for a, for a missional heart. I love this. Look again at verse 13. David expresses his hope in this verse that after God's given him a clean heart and a, a new heart, God would be able to use David in the lives of other people. Look at verse 13. Do you see it there? David wants to be able to teach fellow transgressors God's ways. He wants to be able to help fellow sinners turn to God. But guess what? David can't do that while he's still stuck in his sin. David can't do that while he's still stuck in our sin. Friends, this is a realization that deeply disturbs me every time I confess sin. What comes to mind as I'm confessing my sin is how many opportunities to be used by God have I forfeited while I've been dilly-dallying around with this sin? How many opportunities to be used by God have I taken a pass on because I was preoccupied with lust? or I was nursing a grudge, or I was venting my anger, or I was out spending money on myself. So, see, we can fulfill God's mission for our lives, or we can play around with sin, but we can't do both simultaneously. So the time we spend wrapped up in some sin is the time that we're ill-prepared to be used by God as a loving spouse, as a wise parent, as a listening friend, as a savvy boss or leader in the marketplace, as an ambassador for Christ, wherever. Sin gets us off mission. You know, sometimes it occurs to me with thousands of people who make Christ Community Church their home, 
If we just confessed sin on a regular basis and got clean with God and restored to usefulness, missional, readiness, oh my goodness, what what we could accomplish for him. But some of us right now, the reason right now that we're not being used by God is because we're continuing to play around with something that needs to be confessed and repented of. And I'll tell you, it breaks God's heart that he can't do through you what he wants to do through you until you learn how to practice confession. You know, there's a, there's a, a fifth verse to this song, and it kind of ties into what I've just been saying about a, a, a missional, a return to being missional, missional heart. The, the fifth verse I call the responsiveness, and I want you to pick it up in verse 15 of Psalm 51. After he's confessed his sin, David says, And open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. God, you don't delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. God likes broken people. Broken pops up two times in verse 17. Can't miss it. And you say, oh, that's kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, when I think broken, I think damaged goods. When I think broken, I think, well, you can't use it. You know, you break grandma's china, can't use those dishes. Break your arm, got to go to the doctor, he'll set it, but you can't use it for a while. Okay, you you, you break your promises to a friend, oh, it's going to be a while till you build up trust again, and that relationship becomes, well, well, you know, back where it was. So you say brokenness is not a good thing. Well, actually, occasionally it is, giving an analogy in this regard. When I was a little boy playing Little League, I would periodically go to get a new baseball mitt to the sporting goods store, and I'd bring it home, and that leather was as stiff as can be. Those of you who played baseball as a kid, you remember this. I mean, it was, it was too stiff to close around a hot grounder or a pop fly. You had to take it home, and what I would do is I'd rub oil into the leather, trying to make it supple. And then, 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 then when, it, when it was pliable, I would take a baseball and stick it in the web of the mitt and close it and wrap rubber bands around it. And I would do that several times. And now the mitt could be used. When we fail to make confession of sin a regular practice in our lives. We we become hard. We become brittle. We become spiritually stiff. God can't speak to us. He can't speak through us. He can't lead us. He can't prompt us. We're unresponsive. See, it's the broken person who makes a daily practice, doesn't let a day go by without confessing sins to God whom God can now lead and direct and work through because they're responsive. So we're going to practice what I've been preaching here because we're about to move into a a time where we celebrate communion together and confession and communion go hand in hand. So I'm going to ask our our worship teams to come out at our, our four campuses Confession and communion is one of two ordinances, some call them sacraments, that we observe here at Christ's community. What's the other one, just as an aside? Communion, and what's the other biggie we do around here? Baptism. And I I just want to say that in passing because in two weeks we got our, our next baptism celebration. If you've put your trust in Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to him, but since that point you've never been baptized, see, that that's what the Bible teaches you to do. And so... You know, next time around, 
Make sure that you step up. I want to appeal especially to guys because I love it when women and kids get baptized, but I'm especially moved when I see guys say, I'm following Jesus. My life is identified with him. So that's one of our two ordinances. The other is communion. We're about to celebrate. Confession leads to communion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, don't come to communion until you've examined your own life. So I'm going to give you time to do that across four campuses. We're going to have a minute or two of just very quiet music. We're going to put up on the screen the five steps in confessing. You start with the review. You invite God's spirit. Okay, I'm quiet before you. Put your finger on anything in my life that displeases you, that grieves you. Bring it to my mind. Then you recognize that the repercussions are mainly in a relationship with God. Oh, God, forgive me for offending you. And then you look for the roots. What's behind this? Is there a sin behind the sin? And then you, you call out to God, you make a request for a clean heart, a new heart, a missional heart. And, and then when we've given you an opportunity to do that for a minute or two, and you, you might want to just sit here with your, your palms up on your lap in a receiving posture. God, speak to me. After a couple of moments of quiet music, our teams are going to sing a song over you. The lyrics are rich, wonderful prayer of confession. And then we'll move into our time of communion together.